Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 33. After Hours with Dr. Brenton Dickerson. Good morning. Welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And this season we've been reading Till We Have Faces, but today is one of our After Hours episodes. And so today I'm joined by Dr. Brenton Dickerson from his blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia. I wanted to bring him on the show for quite some time now. So when he started a new blog series on Till We Have Faces, I thought that was the perfect excuse. So here's a little bit of his background. Besides teaching in the literature department at Signum University, Dr. Dickerson is adjunct instructor in literature at King's College in New York City, sessional professor in the Center for Study of Christianity and Culture at the University of Prince Edward Island, and instructor in spiritual theology at Regent College in Vancouver, BC. He also does freelance speaking and writing and is the author of the popular faith, fiction and fantasy blog, A Pilgrim in Narnia. After completing his master's degree in biblical literature at Regent College, Brenton moved with his wife Kerry and his son Nicholas to their native home in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, to teach and write. His academic interests include how the creation of fictional universes help in spiritual formation, theological exploration, and cultural criticism. And he's just completed his PhD at the University of Chester, focusing his work on C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and the Inklings. Dr. Dickerson, welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, it's great to be here. I'm a, I'm a listener, and so great to sit here in the chair now. <laughs> well, I'm sitting in my chair drinking a nice cup of Tetley's tea. Are you having anything? Yeah, well, it's of course a famous thing to talk about, and I'm afraid I don't have a, a nice scotch or something. It's also the middle of the day. But the uh, one thing that to note is that C.S. Lewis was a cider drinker, and I'm not a huge cider fan, but we've got this great local company called Red Island Cider here in Prince Edward Island, and they've got this Father Walker's uh, dry cider. Now, Father Walker was sort of a famous figure from the late 19th century. And then in 1898, they decided to have a church picnic uh, t- to raise money for for some uh, cause. And uh, he was able to get uh, several barrels of, of apple cider donated to, to the picnic. And it turns out that they had given them the hard cider instead of the soft cider. And so this became like a, a fairly famous picnic. Uh, it became quite rowdy. They raised tons of money on, and it's become kind of one of our most uh, infamous events uh, of our little local history. And so I think it's nice to have this kind of little uh, uh, t- touch of the local here. I- I'm also nursing a, a Newfoundland coffee called uh, Jumping Beans. But uh, but this is my um, this is my cheers drink, I guess. Yeah, uh, I love it. And uh, you pastors, you know, pay attention to that story. Next time you're doing a fundraiser, <laughs> the, the, the better the alcohol, the more people will donate. <laughs> It's like a, it's a happy accident, I guess, is, is how uh, the theologians might have put it. Right? Mm, accident, sure. Uh, <laughs> so that was the drink of the week and the quote of the week. Since your blog is A Pilgrim in Narnia, I thought I'd go for something from The Pilgrim's Regress. One road leads home and a thousand roads lead into the wilderness. That's awesome. That's a good one. I, I hadn't quoted that in my mind, so that's great. Well, if you follow us on Instagram, I just released a graphic for it. (laughs) And before we cheers, each week we toast one of our Patreon supporters. And today I'd like to toast Anthony Pets. Anthony, may your heart always be as full as my cup of tea. Cheers. 
So, Dr. Dickerson, could you just fill in a little bit of your personal history for the listeners? When were you first introduced to C.S. Lewis? Mm, absolutely. So, I mean, I was a young adult convert to Christianity, and C.S. Lewis is really name was always around. I had read a bit of Narnia as a kid, especially loved Magician's Nephew. But uh, and I had heard about the sci-fi and I always intended to get there. I just never did. I'm a sci-fi lover and I was really taken up by the 80s stuff, that kind of austere, you know, dry land, empty spaces kind of sci-fi and Dune basically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, do, do, well, yeah, do it was all the copies of Dune and, you know, and so like Gene Wolfe and Roger Lasney and all them that are making these c complex uh lots of walking kind of sci-fi uh, books and and uh and so that was kind of what I was into and then uh, slowly though you kind of I almost felt like I had to read CS Lewis like it was kind of like a requirement, like one of the ladders uh, to eternity or something. And The ladder of div divine ascent. <laughs> that's right. And so I had a copy of uh, Mere Christianity that I went in and, and bought at a bookstore. And I can actually see like the different times I tried to read it uh, and, and never really fully got into it. One of them was on like on a beach in Thailand and there's still probably some Thai uh, beach sand kind of uh, stuck in there. And I always did really well in the first few chapters, which are about the kind of the philosophical reason we have for believing there's a God. But I, I really struggle with the book as a whole. And and I always got a few chapters in and then set it down, a few chapters in and set it down. But I was working in Japan. My wife and I were there, and, and we were working and volunteering with a little local church. And I showed up for a book study. It was an advanced English book study. And basically, the teacher just handed me The Great Divorce, which I had not read. And... Sat me down with with Japanese students, uh, and said, "Okay, now teach them this book, <laughs> which I had I had not read. Like it was it was my first time holding a copy. Was sitting there in the chair, uh, in the the center there, and uh, um, and I actually I still I still have I stole the copy from the church. I still have that here on my shelf. Hadn't read the preface. Didn't know what the context was or what it was. I didn't know what it was about." Um, and basically, it's about purgatory, which is pretty weird. And uh, <laughs> and then I sat down, and I actually had to look words up in the first paragraph. They were just words that I, I hadn't really encountered before. One was the word Q, which then I had to try and teach Japanese to say a word that I didn't yet know the answer to. Anyway, it was just a, kind of a funny moment. and But it really kind of caught my imagination. I read it, and then I read it again. Uh, and I let it soak in. And as I did my master's degree, I went through all of Lewis's fiction. Um, but it was trying to come back to mere Christianity. It was tough. And so finally, I bought the audiobook. Uh, and I listened to the audiobook. And I felt kind of guilty, like I was cheating. You know? No, 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 no. If any listeners out there, if you think listening to audiobooks <laughs> is cheating, let me just put that to rest. If if that's the best way you consume media, you do it. I get through way more audiobooks than I do physical books, and I love reading. Yeah, of course, you're running a podcast. I run a blog. <laughs> <laughs> that That's true. <laughs> but the... I just, well, of course, they were lectures to begin with. Why should I feel kind of odd about listening to them? And I was really able to kind of draw Lewis in at that moment. And I understood finally that there was a wholeness to the book that I never saw before. And, and that the book isn't really, I mean, it is a work of apologetics, but it's a more powerful book of spiritual life. And that's really mm. what the arrow of that book is shooting towards as you read through. Um, and he uses that word uh, spiritual life throughout. He also calls it Zoe, the 
the Greek word. And uh, and then that just kind of drew me in. And I kept I got sucked in by the literature and then I would uh, the, the fiction and then I would go off and, and read one or two of the other books. And it was ultimately, though, uh, it, my, my final turn to C.S. Lewis was an academic failure. I had had this uh, great project that I proposed for a Ph.D. Uh, about emerging um, things in in American religion uh, and North American religion. And those things like all of a sudden emerged and culture began changing really quickly. And so my PhD was already out of date. I think it's actually <laughs> a Lewis quote in, at the end of uh, The Four Loves, like everything that that isn't eternal is eternally out of date. And, and my PhD was by, like, it's the wrong thing. You shouldn't study something that's emerging. You should some, study it before or after it emerges. And uh, so I was kind of uh, depressed and, and, and then this guy, just this wild haired guy sat down at the coffee shop I was sitting in and, and asked me what was wrong and told me I was doing everything wrong. Uh, that, um, it turns out he had a PhD in theology and that you shouldn't, um, you should never study a movement. You should always study a person and then you can root yourself and, and their whole world. And then you can talk to everything else in the world from that perspective or against that perspective. And that's, mm. that's how it worked. I went and I read through my shelf about people that I wanted to spend, um, you know, basically a decade or so in conversation with, um, because a PhD and then the books that come after is about a decade. And, um, and it, ultimately there were others that were interesting. If uh, my German was better, I might've done Moltmann. If uh, if Latin was good, I might have done Augustine. But it was um, it was C.S. Lewis that caught my imagination, and he was somebody that I could read for fun while I was still in the midst of studying him. So that's kind of I got caught. It's I understand everybody else is caught in this kind of immediate raptures kind of way, but for me it was a, <laughs> a long build, um, and and I found him very useful for being able to think about life and to think about culture uh, and. And then each time I discover something about him, then his stories then kind of fill out in in, mm. in beautiful ways. And so I, I feel like Narnia is, is a great children's book, um, but it's an even better adult book, uh, adult series. Like it, it just is so much more fun once you've, you know, read Dante or hiked um, an impossible trail or had a child, you know, or, or had a business fail, you know, or had a friendship rupture. Like then those books really kind of come alive, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'd add to that, Lewis gets better the more of him you read. Because when you read another of his works, you then now see that colouring everything else you've ever read by him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Till We Have Faces is a book read twice. Like, I think like if if when I do my master's teaching with it, I, I, I tend to say, I want you to budget two readings, you know, maybe one audio book, one paper, or if you don't like audio, just twice on paper early in the semester and later. Because it's... It, for me, it was far better the second time, but I've found that again and again and again for people is that the second reading is, is better than the first. Yeah, the till we have faces whiplash has worn off a little bit and you have some idea of what you're going into. <laughs> well, it's like, is there another book like it? Uh, no. Someone may have an answer, yes to that, an affirmative answer. I don't, like I, I haven't encountered a, a book quite like this. Uh, although there are some probably books in that style I've never... Um, it's unusual. Um, and I feel that way reading some other books too. 
But in this case, um, lots of Narnian-like things came later, and lots of Lewis's weird sci-fi kind of comes later. Uh, or you find them in the old magazines of Pulp Fiction. But I, I don't know anything else like Till We Have Faces. I keep meaning to ask this question more regularly to my guests. What is your favorite C.S. Lewis work? Uh, favorite book? Yes. Yeah, I think it's The Great Divorce, absolutely. Yeah. That is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you in that world too? Or? Absolutely. Oh, good, I, yeah. It is easily my favorite. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's the nicest mix of accessible, beautiful writing, some very clear spiritual lessons, and just some mind-bending concepts that rock people's world. Oh, yeah. I think like if you were to say, like if someone said, I'm going to give a day to C.S. Lewis, like a day of reading, 16 hours, right? that they get mm-hmm. pizza delivered or something, uh, <laughs> you know, then I, I would say great divorce has to be, I think it's at the center of what he's doing. Um, and I think the center of his thought is found there. Uh, and I think it works as a good hinge, hinge point for all his work. Mm. And, and so I read, yeah, I, any chance I get, I, I try and talk about the great divorce or teach it. I understand not everybody likes it exactly. Sure. Um, but you know, there's a kind of uh, brilliance there in, in both kind of the brightness of the world that's created, but also um, the sharpness of the, the text and ideas that I think are worth studying. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, could you tell us a little bit about your blog? What was it that motivated you to start A Pilgrim in Narnia? <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, it, it was again at a beach. Uh, I generally have lived on islands almost always or near, near the ocean. And, and and so I guess it's not always surprising that this happens at beaches. But I was reading – there was a, a local pastor retired and gave away all his books. Uh, to, and I grabbed a bunch and dropped a bunch off to a local college. And then uh, in that, I kept all the C.S. Lewis books. And in there was uh, Letters to an American Lady, which is like – so this ends up being, other than the fiction, probably my fourth – nonfiction book or something I read of Lewis's. So not mm-hmm. really the best introduction, but to me it was, <laughs> it was just so immediate and living and a pastoral, uh, and, uh, you know, this constant nudging of person to kind of, re- you know, let go of the, the change they've chains they built around their own life to try and to, to try and let those be released by not focusing so much on what's trapped inside the chains. And I didn't really get it all at first, but it kind of provoked me. And then I kept going back to it. And uh, it turns out it was actually a valuable American first edition that I had that I was reading at the beach. But that, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. It was in a box. But the it, it sort of tr- brought me in. And as I looked for blogs about C.S. Lewis, I found kind of lots of fan stuff because the Narnian films had just come out maybe five years before that or something or were coming out. And so lots of fan stuff, and there were some like blogs that were the the, the company that owns the books or or colleges or something that have C.S. Lewis courses. But but there wasn't really what I thought could happen, which was a, a sandbox for taking Lewis's ideas and works, and then finding the ways that they connect to culture, faith and spiritual life, other people's writings, you know, history, biography. And and that's where it began. And and it was also intentionally a sandbox for my own ideas. So when I wanted to test out, you know, it's like a, sometimes to find out if a joke is funny, you have to say it out loud. And, <laughs> and, that's, and that's basically how I think 
scholarship works is that the writing is there to help us you know shape the things that we want uh get our, get the stuff that's kind of just a hint in our mind and then to to get it out in the world and so as i was reading till we have faces again i'm teaching it actually i have a video discussion with students on monday um but i was also thinking about this podcast this whole kind of new thread has come into my mind and so i'll need to take time i can talk about it later but i need to take time to to work that thread out to say it out loud and so i'll use the blog for that and the blog post is everything from like a 75 word here's a thought and i'll get back to it later or a quick book review uh, all the way to like you know, I've done 5,000 word essays on there that aren't publishable anywhere, <laughs> you know, um, because they're not built in the right way or I don't have time to get them out in the world. So I just put them there. So it's been great. It's been great for me um, uh, to develop those ideas. And so that's what the thing was. I didn't know that there was sort of really a market for uh, people um, really trying to, I didn't realize how bi- how much people want to go deeper in their reading yeah. and are looking for ways to make those connections. Yeah. I, I've, I've had the same sort of surprise when we started the podcast. It was, it was for a whole bunch of different reasons, but I've been amazed at the number of people who read a lot and they, 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 they want more. They, they've read a particular book and they know there's more goodness in there. They just, it's not even almost that they need an expert. They just need somebody to start talking about it and get the juices flowing, get the ideas going. And the number of times we've had people write to us and say, I really like this idea that you brought out, but I think you go too far. Have you thought about this idea? And it's like, well, my reading experience has just been improved dramatically. Yeah, no, that's great. And I'm sure that the podcasting does. Actually, I hear you guys talk about it, right? Where, you, you know, um, you'll actually p- try an idea out and then you pull back from the idea as you're saying it out loud, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's that there's, uh, I think that there's a kind of a kitchen table naturalness to podcasts for that, right? Mine isn't quite like that. If it is, I'll say that. Like, I'm putting out something that's totally tentative. You guys feel free to tear it apart. But this is this is where I, I'm at with this. And um, gen- generally, it sharpens. It's not usually totally wrong or something. <laughs> yeah. You know. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's turned out useful. Like, when I had to teach for the first time a whole course on C.S. Lewis, I had 50% of my lecture material all all already and i i was able to have a ta basically make slides for my blog posts that i uh, you know it was it was i was stunned at how much easier that was the work already done but it's it's still kind of discovery you know this you know this uh till we have faces blogging experience that i've been doing this this winter and spring which has been maybe once every two or three weeks i put up a post it it like it's actually changed the way that I'm reading the book and helping me concentrate. Uh, I, in this case, on the leaves rather than the the tree, the whole tree, um, and in kind of fun and intimate ways. So what I'd like to do today is spend a little bit of time talking about till we have faces in general and talk about some of the articles that you've written about it recently, and then a little bit after that talk about the four loves since it's related to till we have faces. Uh, and then end a little bit with a book I know you've written about also, The Screwtape Letters. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, sure, sure. That's a big fan favorite, right? It's, it's Screwtape Letters, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Season mm. season four is going to be something else. Yeah, <laughs> that should be fun. <laughs> so let's talk about the book, which you yourself have described as among the 20th century's most important novels. Uh, and the one thing I've loved about Till We Have Faces is the number of people who have come out and say, I think this might be one of the most important books ever written. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I use novel here in that kind of more strict um, 
non-fantasy realistic psychological development kind of sense, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like, you know, I read this uh, last year with Doris Lessing, The Golden Notebook, which is also epistolary, also kind of psychological development, but postmodern. Um, and one of the most important 20th century books. And, and to me, it just fits in that category. You know, I would put it with, you know, some of those leading books. Uh, you know, I... And important means a lot of funny things, though, doesn't it? Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but more than important, it's also just great. What, what is it that you love about the book? Yeah. So I come in, I come in pretty generously accepting of people that have ideas in their works, right? So when I read, uh, you know, cli-fi, which is a big part of science fiction now, climate science fiction, people, the good stuff, it's not terribly obvious, but there's usually a kind of moral lesson or something near the surface of what's happening now. In a decade, it won't feel that way anymore, but that's mm -hmm. where it is right now. So, and even masters like Margaret Atwood, uh, you know, she still has that kind of near, near the surface, right? Um, C.S. Lewis is the, 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 the big ideas in the text are pretty near the surface of the text. Right. And that's true of this book, but really it's true only once you've gotten through the, the whole experience of having watched the world through a highly effective and highly self-deceived individual. Right. So you're always bent the whole way through, never sure exactly what to trust about what you read. And then seeing this profound moment that comes out of of these encounters with self and, and self-truth, uh, you know, it, to me, it has the sophistication that a lot of moral books don't have. Um, and yet it's it it's lacking, you know, it, it's not preachy in any kind of way. Absolutely. Um, but if we were just to read the, the second half, like it would sound preachy. It's because we're we're it's because we're drawn in by the unreliable narrator all the way through. Mm. It, it hits so hard in the second half. So that's for me as the surprise of the, you know. And I mean, just before he wrote this, he was finishing up, you know, the last battle and magician's nephew. So just from a literary history perspective, that's super weird. Like that's, that's <laughs> so amazingly different, right? Different, and yet you can still very clearly see some similar similar themes mm -hmm. running through both of them. Yeah, particularly that of I'd say transformation. Yeah, well, I think um, there was actually a uh, there's a woman named Sister Gallagher uh, who wrote a PhD thesis back in the early '80s, and uh, she was nice enough to mail it to me because no library has it. Uh, so she physically mailed me the copy that was like sun bleached uh, sitting on a shelf for 35 years. Um, and she does a really great job at showing that conversion and transformation are really at the center of Lewis, what Lewis writes about. And I, th I think she's l largely right about that. And, and my PhD was in some ways a kind of conversation with that, kind of pushing that further and then and recentering things a little bit, but without losing that, that everyday conversion she was talking about, which I think was... Um, uh, I can't remember which of the popes uh, had, had brought that out in a cyclical talking about everyday conversion. It might have been John Paul II. Sounds like him. Yeah, and it does sound like him. And and so she was really applying that to Lewis's works, that Lewis is in a sense intimating what what um, John Paul II was, was trying to, to show as part of everyday life, every, part of reality anyway. So yeah, I, I, I think a transformation is, is a, a great way of, of capturing that. But you guys actually had... 
Um, it's been a while since I listened to it, but you, you guys have actually had a whole conversation, I think, about like self-death. Mm-hmm. Die before you die. There's no time after. Yeah, yeah. And so that was my first, I think, published article on C.S. Lewis was back in 2013 or 2014, Die Before You Die, uh, where I went through that that idea in his fiction. And my thesis is largely that on a grand scale. Um, and I think that's the... I think when we talk about transformation, well, um, you know, falling into villainy is transformation, right? Yeah. Not all transformations are good. <laughs> that, that, you know, that that's right. You know, like, uh, you know, uh, accidentally doing the right thing and then being surprised by it is transformation. You know, um, you know, uh, moral, like, what, what does Orwell try to do? You know, I will try my hardest to be um, a good person. Right. And fails immediately. <laughs> it fails. But if she was a younger person and a bit more pliable in spirit, she wouldn't have been as successful, but she probably could have at least um, tidied up the, the, the moral house a bit, right? Mm. And so there are lots of transformations. So what do we mean by transformation? And I think it really comes down to that, to the what you guys were talking about, the die before you die, this loss of self, uh, the giving up of the self, uh, you know, sure, there's a hope of new life. There's the hope of resurrection on the other side of that. That's the the pattern and the promise and the principle. But it's we can't we can't just expect that, right? Mm. You think of Eustace in the Voyage of Don Treader when he he's been dragoned uh, because he you know he, well he was thinking dragonish thoughts and he was acting like a, a a dragon acts and and then in a magical synchronicity. You know, he becomes a dragon. To become undragoned requires the loss of self without absolute assurance that there will be something on the other side of that loss. And I think that that pattern is 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 there. And that's ultimately what Orwell has to has to do is to to lose herself. Um, Matt and I were reading through the Voice of the Dawn Treader for an episode that will drop in a, in a few weeks. And one thing I've read the Dawn Treader, I have no idea how many times, but one thing I noticed this time was how Eustace as the dragon effectively rolls over. He presents his belly. He is in the most vulnerable position possible yeah. for Aslan to begin taking his skin off. Yeah, no, that's a good. That's a, actually, that's a good point. And I think what part of what I do in my work, I don't know that I, I haven't blogged a lot about it because it's hard. It takes a lot of detail to get to it is to look very carefully at movement and shape in texts. And I think you guys brought this out in the conversation with Andrew Ladd. So uh, uh, a few weeks ago, which is, you know, as Orwell's kneeling by the water, you know, she, she then sees differently. She actually is able to see to the kind of the spiritual layer that exists with the physical natural layer of reality. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, but I think, I think, I think it was you, I can't remember, but also added that was, she was unveiled at that moment too. Yeah. Um, and it makes mm -hmm. sense. She was drinking water. She would physically have to be something I hadn't thought of, but these, uh, the movement in the text is not unimportant it's really important in lewis and 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 i think you know that kind of like total giving up is a, as a group the exact the kind of exactly the kind of hint that lewis leaves in his books but what's most important in life i think 
Now, in one of your recent articles that you said that while you love till we have faces, you hadn't written much about it, <laughs> possibly because you don't fully understand it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you list a whole load of a series of questions <laughs> of, of things that you keep asking yourself as you're reading it. Can you just talk a little bit about what some of those questions are? Well, yeah, like that, I mean, that's a, a good point. Like when I'm in the, some of it is maybe my own, my own growth. I mean, this is the problem. Like you had Andrew Ladzo on a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, and he's just, he's been reading this for decades and, and has been working on a, a text for a long time. His thinking is much more mature than I, I am. And unfortunately he's, he's also really very good looking and has a great voice. So there's, there are other <laughs> deficits there too, but like, I'm still, I've only been reading this text really for a decade and I still discover new things each time. Like what does it mean that she, Orwell is Ungut and Orwell is Psyche, right? How do all those things link? Um, even the die before you die isn't explained fully in the text. You know, you almost have to make some guesses. Okay. So it's not a Socratic death. It's not the full rule of the will. Right. So it's not that kind of death. Um, and there's, of course, a joke in there, too. Right. Because, you know, Socrates died of suicide. Right. Um, of, mm-hmm. well, I don't know if you call it suicide, but took his life um, uh, in in submission to the court, um, to the people or to the to his class of people. And so, uh, you know, it's not those kinds of deaths. So what do we mean? Right. So we have to kind of work on on that. And and so. There's a lot that's unanswered in this text. It's a really much it's it's really much more like a text of the 1960s than it is certainly of Lewis of any of Lewis's writing. Uh, you know what? You know what does it what does it mean to get a face? Right, it's in the title. It's until yeah. we have faces, right? Okay, so did she, did she die with a face? Like. Was when she faced herself, was that her face? You know, um, is she then then like the new statue of Ungut in the in the temple? Like this is like there's a lot of questions that I have. Yeah, and I think this is why I I now understand why people love this book. Aside from the fact that I think it's well written, that there's sort of a big kind of twisty kind of thing at the end. Uh, but Lewis doesn't lay things out on a platter for you. I think in most of his other books, with the possible exception of uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, where you need a key to work out who everybody is, um, in this book, he doesn't lay things out on a, on a platter for you just to simply consume. And the feeling that I've been getting as I've been going through this very, very slowly <laughs> is he wants that, that wrestling. He wants you to wrestle with the text and wrestle with the ideas and a lot of the things that he wants you to find are just a little bit beyond the text. It was like one of the things I always said that was wonderful about Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, if one had really had to compare it to the Lord of the Rings, is that Lewis draws a sketch and then lets you run with it. Whereas Tolkien will give you every little detail for every little uh, piece of tobacco that is in Bilbo's pipe. Whereas Lewis gives you a sketch and then sends you on your way. And in this book, I feel like he does that with the ideas. Because in all of those questions, I'm sure you're not completely, I have no idea what this is. You have some intuitions, you have some ideas that you've drawn from the text, but you don't quite have your hands all the way around them. Yeah. 
I mean, it's kind of this this book. I think illustrates. Sorry, we, this is. I'm going to say French, and I understand that this is a terribly academic thing to do. But this is what Lewis would do. The difference between savoir and connaître, uh, or there's different like Hebrew and, and Greek also have different kinds of knowledges. Um, and I can never remember because in, in my French isn't good enough. You know, I'm bilingual, but I, I never really exactly understood the difference in French. But in older French, you know, there's the the connected, integrated ways of knowing, and then there are the more intellectual or structured ways of knowing. And I think this book is really a much more intimate and connected kind of knowing book. And I think it's better read, uh, you know, in ways that make people anxious today, which is bringing your own story to the text and throwing yourself into it and and allowing those things to mix together. Um, and that makes people anxious, I think, because it means you're going to be offended at various parts, right? <laughs> or you, you're going to you're going to see Lewis where he probably could have been a bit bigger in his thinking in a particular part or something, right? Well, I think that's actually fine. Right? <laughs> you know, I think this works. You know, I can you know I can break down uh, the great divorce in all kinds of ways. I've got charts. I made charts. I love charts. <laughs> But I think this is better, in, you know, with, uh, you know, a, a pencil in your ear sitting, you know, in a comfortable chair, um, you know, coffee or tea or something else and, and just really kind of enjoying it and talking about it and troubling over it and sitting with it and, you know, maybe reading it with other books. Um, I did read the, the Golden Ass this, this week as well mm -hmm. uh, with this book, as you guys did, and, and um, The Four Loves, um, you know, Voyage of the Don Treader is a good companion, The Great Divorce, um, but, but even like other loves, right, or other books that are about love, right? I read Anna Karenina once with this, um, although it took me way longer to read Anna Karenina than this book, right? <laughs> uh, and so uh, a book that's about devouring love. A book where the the reconciliation doesn't happen for everyone as it does for Orwell. Mm. The principle's not introduced um, for for most of the characters. So yeah, so I I don't know. That's the kind of I just I'm pretty comfortable with not all the answers being there, but I'm also comfortable with spending part of my life exploring what it might mean. Well, speaking of exploration, you have an article where you explore the similarities and differences between Orwell and her father. Oh. Uh, can you outline some of those for us? Because I thought this this one came out actually at just the right time when Matt and I were recording when Orwell has the vision where she digs down through the pillar room. Yeah. So I had this in my head as we were talking about that. Yeah, no, it was it was amazing. And and I forget exactly what triggered it. I was just doing just doing reading, I guess. And and I was actually thinking about something different. I was thinking about this is weird, but this is what I've said coming at this book in different ways. I was thinking, you know, what would an, how would an anthropologist read this? And I saw within the text like a hundred little details. So for example, like, you know, do you eat with your right hand or your left hand? Uh, what is the cycle of the moon with regard to superstitions? You know, how what kind of offerings work? What's the physical structures of the temples and the city and the economics and all kinds of stuff? So that's what I was thinking about as a reading as an anthropologist, uh, saying that this is like a culture that has been buried in the ground that has now been unearthed mm. you know, and uh, sits in crystalline form before us. So how do we understand it? So that's how I was reading it. And I haven't gotten to the point of writing that off up because I could 
but I did get excited and thinking like, uh, you know, how Orwell just, there's a bunch of ways that Orwell does is both the opposite of her father and the exact image of her father. Right. So she's the opposite of the father in that she's actually a competent and beloved ruler. Right. Like she's, I mean, there's lots of incompetence in any kind of dictatorship, I think. But because, it, you know, you narrow your possibilities to the mind of one, uh, you, you know, and, and, you know, press the brutality and the lack of freedom and all those other things. And, you know, but she, she's a great, she's a good economist. Uh, she yeah. actually um, uses economics to, to help the community recover from years of plague and famine uh, and war and the threat of war. And she, she develops a pretty strong sense of what is possible. She, she uses her slaves differently. She treats people differently. She draws advisors in and she does all these really smart things, but she also in her heart keeps going back to her father's reality, particularly thinking about rage and anger um, and she talks a number of times about, I found myself in my father's own rage, mm. right? And, and, and her father was abusive. Like he just, he would beat her. He killed a slave boy for no reason in particular. Uh, he was a tyrant and she has this tyranny in her heart all of the time. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, do you, do you expect to slug a bed your whole life? I think is the line, right? And that's at the mm -hmm. beginning with her father and her. And then she does it with Bardia, uh, her really the person she loves most in the world at that time. And then, and then her father does it to her in a dream vision at the end as well, right? And you see that book ending. Um, there's a certain sense that, you know, I am Ungit, she cries. I am Psyche, she experiences. But I am, actually, I forget his name already. The, I am Nick, my King father. Trump. King Trom, that's right. There's actually one of those. Uh, I have it in in my blog post somewhere, but uh, but I had to look it up. Where I am Trom, I am Father, is also a truth, right? And so when we come to the second paragraph of the text at the very beginning of the book, we actually have this powerful word. Um, maybe actually it's the the third paragraph. I was Orwell, right? Written while she's still alive, and yet. She has all these kinds of ways that she loses herself in this text, and one of them is as her father, yeah, in the negative side. Yeah, yeah. and you in that article, you had a really interesting link between Orwell and Jadis from The Magician's Nephew. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, feminist scholars have done a, a, a lot of interesting um, and positive and a lot of weird and things in reading Lewis. And I don't know that any, any just popular writer has been held up with as much uh, scrutiny in the 20th century as, as Lewis. And part of it is, you know, well, it's Hemingway. They just kind of say, well, we're, you know, we don't, there's nothing there for me to kind of critique because it's just one kind of masculinity or is one kind of machoism. But with Lewis, there's all these kind of subtleties and possibilities that are mixed with all these kind of negativities and stereotypes. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a, a lot of that, but you have here, uh, you know, Jadis as a tyrant versus Orwell as a tyrant are really quite different things. And yet that one of the temptations is ownership in both Right. Mm -hmm. Jadis, um, Jadis, uh, when she's queen of Charn and then when she is the, uh, you know, the, the mock, uh, the, uh, uh, the false emperor of Narnia, 
she sets herself up and in a position where everyone is not just her servant, but actually her property in a certain kind of a way and is there for her to, to utilize in whatever way she sees fit, uh, and it, which is often deadly. She's willing to wipe out an entire wor- world for her own sake. Well, the temptation is much more intimate, I think, for oral, but the same, which is the ownership of others, right? Slaves and things like that. That's the temptation her father had. Um, for her, it's psyche. You know, psyche is mine, um, is the phrase. And when you look at mine all the way through the text, you really see this kind of um, the, 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 the tendrils of love uh, have worked until it's a kind of a trap, until it's a kind of a ha- hatred and everything gets twisted around. Right. And you see this actually, I was listening to your podcast when Orwell encounters Bardia's wife after Bardia has passed away and the, the Bardia's wife's, you know, um, says, you know, you, you've taken my husband. Now you've taken my son, you know, and, and, and Oral is like, well, how do you, why do you allow that? Well, you know, one word from you would have stopped all this. Uh, and she's like, well, do you, do you think like, do you think I would do that? You know, not in a million years because, you know, I want him to be a man, to be free, to be a person, to be his own and to do great things that he is meant to be. I, if I keep him, then he's just a dog or something to own. And, and Oral's like, how, how do you stand that? <laughs> and it's, it's kind of one of her most honest moments in the whole book, isn't it? Right. You yeah. know, how do you stand that? It does seem to really confuse her that somebody would treat somebody else that way, but it's making you unhappy. Why do you stand for it? Yeah. I mean, it's, and so this idea of self-sacrificial love is so parodied in, in Orwell. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a visual par- parody. I mean, where does, when she uses a, um, you know, suicide, homicide to try and manipulate psyche, but all that is needed is suicide. Mm-hmm. And she demonstrates it by driving a, a dagger through where her wrist. Right. And so we have this parody of the cross, which is the ultimate image of self-sacrificial love. Uh, right? I hadn't noticed that, you know, and it's, uh, you know, for psyche, who is of course a, a Christ figure, right? She's dying for the sake of the people on something very much like a tree right? A stake at the top of, uh, I guess it was a tree uh, at the top of a hill, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, this is like, and so you have, um, you know, psyche and anti-psyche Christ and antichrist, you know, sitting there in that moment of manipulated love. And the opposition isn't just visual. It's also, you have psyche who is really, even though she's compelled, there's a kind of consent that she's giving to the sacrifice, Mm-hmm. Uh, she probably could have found a way to commit suicide before it happened or, or something, but she, she, she goes to the sacrifice in a kind of love, a sacrificial love, whereas Orwell tries to keep her from the sacrifice, but not out of sacrificial love, but for herself, mm. you know, and, uh, and that's where I think you, you and, and Andrew Lazzo talked about the way that. Um, for love's links in, you know, this possessive love uh, versus a true love. Uh, I think that's that's one of the most powerful links with the four loves is that that idea. 
Now, at the end of February, you posted another article. You, earlier, you spoke about the anthropology of Gloam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really liked this article because it was the peasant pagan prayer. Try and say that quickly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where you spoke about the empathy that Lewis seems to have for the followers of Ungit, for this pre-Christian society. Uh, and the scene in the temple where this old woman comes in and is praying to the stone of Ungit, mm. that that broke my brain in the second part. It's like, what is Lewis trying to say here? Yeah, yeah. And he may just be being authentic to the world building moment, right? So, mm-hmm. or he is, that's at least part of it, right? Is how do I create an authentic world? And you're right, Narnia is far thinner than Lord of the Rings or Patrick Rothfuss' Name of the Wind world, uh, you know, or a lot of, you know, Dune, you know, there's a lot that's given in details, ring world, things like that. So these great worlds we have typically are far more detailed and tight than Lewis's world. You know, the the great example in Narnia is, you know, so you've had a hundred years of winter, a hundred years that you're trapped from other societies, and yet... You know, Mr. Beaver has, you know, fresh potatoes, uh, you know, uh, his hops for his beer and mead. And, you know, like it's, you know, there's sewing machines, uh, there's a market for sewing machines, I guess. And so, you know, Lewis isn't terribly tight in those ways, but fidelity for his world building works in another kind of a way. And and some of that is intertextual. So he brings other worlds into his text. Um, and, I, and I have something to say about uh, something you guys were talking about about Cupid and and Psyche in the original um, tale in Lucius and what's going on here, but so there is a kind of fidelity there with this pagan peasant pra- prayer. Did I do peasant pagan prayer <laughs> <clears throat> in the temple? Uh, but like, but there's a more like there's a picture somewhere on the internet of Lewis sitting on one of the Stonehenge stones smoking a cigarette. Now it's just kind of you know on a hike. Uh, he hiked down to Salisbury and and up into the up into the hills. And and now you can't have access to it. You can't touch those stones. No, those were the days when you could sit on the stones and have a cigarette. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and so he's sitting there on this, and and the stone's still lay. It's just one of the, he didn't push a stone down. But that's actually the the context of this temple right are these old standing stones prehistoric pre her world that have been adapted into an active temple unlike ours and ours <laughs> ours in england so ours uh the ones in england uh, maybe you more yours than mine and you're canadian they're yours too it's part of the commonwealth yeah they're yours too and those are we now know more about why they were there but lewis reimagines it into a temple and then fills that out into this whole sacrificial stuff. So there's lots of fidelity there. But Lewis also had this great kind of love for the pagan world. Um, you know, when he and his wife Joy, just a couple of years after this, uh, went, um, five years after this, I guess, they went to Greece when she was dying. And they were at um, the temple, I guess it was the Temple of Apollo. Uh, and Lewis said, wrote to somebody, well, I was tempted to pray to Apollo for healing. Um, he said, but you know, I think even in this place that that could be taken up as a prayer to Christ, you know, that he really felt like the, the pagan world was a sort of capital P for him that, that prepared people, you know, uh, for something that, uh, moved their religion just one step forward, their faith and ethics one step forward. Um, and and he, uh, there's recently been a, a new a piece that Lewis wrote called a, a pagan a Christmas for pagans or something something that was lost in history has been recovered, 
And he's like, I've been asked to write this, but England isn't pagan. It's heathen. If it was pagan, I would have all kinds of hope for it. But because it's heathen, I don't know what to say. But, you know, you know, don't give in to Christmas too much. I think it was basically his message. But, <laughs> you know, with paganism, you have uh, at the end of the four loves, he says, you know, um, he somebody else says, uh, you know, when the, the half gods are gone and the true God arrives, you know, and he says, no, I think that's upside down. He says, when you finally have the true God, then you can appreciate the half gods for what they are. And so he thought the mature, mature Christians with a great imagination can live through and with the pagan world uh, in all its literature and, and myth and maybe even its neighborliness today in a way that, um, in a way that uh, gives it kind of a full sense of what it is without losing itself. It can then enhance our imagination. So that's why he's able to use magic mythology, classical world stuff in a way that, that uh, like in the American context, a lot of people are challenged, you know, by Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Narnia, you know, uh, some conservative Christians resist that because of all the pagan and magical realities in it for lewis is like no no because we have the true god we are able then to appreciate all those other things for all their richness so i think that might be happening too uh, but in the text of course it's just to show the contrast between her and the, the her own understanding of Unget and what's possible in the hearts of others so mm. I, i've often thought as i was reading this particular book how I would have loved to have seen a conversation between St. Jerome and C.S. Lewis. Because yeah. Jerome loved his pagan literature. He hated that he did, but he really loved it. And I, I think Jack could have sat down with him, and I think he could have been a little bit more at peace with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you wonder, too, like, yeah, that, that's funny. I never thought of that kind of pairing. Like, I've thought of, like, pairing Tertullian with people, just but to watch the madness of it, I think, more than anything. <laughs> but, like, Jerome, I don't know. I don't know Jerome enough. Like, he remains sort of fuzzy for me in the background. Like, I wish, I wish he knew a bit more about the Jewish world. That I think if, if he had been a bit more invested in the Jewish context of early Christianity, that I think the Western world would have been... I think he was more important to that part than Augustine when it came to the treatment of Jewish people and the Hebrew context later. Hmm. Uh, not that we didn't benefit from having the translations and all, you know, like he did huge stuff. Um, I don't know. That's a funny conversation. I've thought of like, I guess I've thought of more friendly conversations. Like what if like Lewis and Bonhoeffer, you know, or if, um, you know, or Tolkien and, you know, Paul the 23rd, that's maybe a little less friendly probably, but like, uh, you know, I've thought of other pairings, but I hadn't thought of that one. That's intriguing. <laughs> yeah. Whenever people talk about the, who, you know, if you can have dinner with three yeah. people living or dead, I'm thinking about the pairing of the other people. I, it's that <laughs> conversation that I want to see. <laughs> well, and of course we like Lewis is very Augustinian. Mm -hmm. But he rejects Augustine in kind of two really big points is Augustine was just far too dismissive of the value of myth. Right. And, and, and that was, I think, brought up in his whole world for him being like a loose you know, heathen was bound up with this public life that included theater and the arts and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so he just way too quickly moved past that. And there are many artists and critics today that are rereading Augustine fixing augustine but using augustinian structures for their work 
but saying he was wrong on this point. And the second thing was the the way that he Augustine had this sense of, you know, you can only love God truly. All of your loves will always let you down. And Lewis's basic argument is, yeah, but like that's the risk. That's what we're here for. We throw ourselves in on that point. Um, now, of course, he may have read Augustinian wrong on, on that point, but Augustine wrong. But uh, And we've actually got an episode coming up with Dr. Uh, Lepoavi. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, on his love work. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've, we've sucked him into Canada. He's actually been converted to canadian so yeah <laughs> yes i heard <laughs> yeah yeah it happens you know sometimes so yeah now there was one other article i wanted to talk to you about that you wrote about uh in april you posted an article which was prompted by a digital liturgy which a friend had made for that church's zoom vespers uh what was it about that liturgy that really struck you so this is the so 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 she like actually kind of one of the moments that are happening right now and so we're recording this at the beginning of May but of 2020 but this will come out later is we are mostly all in the midst in the western world of various kinds of lockdowns or isolation points and so the way churches are dealing with it is really kind of interesting and creative you know my own is a basic kind of you know pop music on acoustic and then live stream uh, preaching and and I had the misfortune of being in the middle of a series when when the end of the world happened um, it's really inconvenient and and the series was on heaven I mean how inconvenient you know for the end of the world to come when you're talking about heaven and so uh, um, it, it was uh, but in, in this uh, woman is a minister at um, kind of a mainstream like a large urban baptist church and she's writing liturgy that can be done in vespers services and evening services and they've adapted i think a a new zealand episcopalian um, service for this and and uh, for their own context and she had this beautiful line in it in the midst of this she had taken all her own nature photography and added uh, some classical music and then this liturgy, a part of it. And one of the, the sentences was, well, why should my heart be sad? And it was the way she said it was so nice. She's a nice voice and it fit in really well. It fits with a song. But the first thing that I thought of when she wrote that was, well, why should my heart not dance? I think that's the line, right? And that line comes in... Uh, till we have faces and it's a funny moment it comes twice until we have faces Uh, and it's it's one of these opportunities that orwell had to face truth and a bigger more expansive and generous possibility than she could have imagined Um, but she resists it Um, she rules herself in resistance and and it occurs the first time when she is going up the mountain uh, with bardia to to bury the bones of uh, psyche um, you know, she, it's a, I don't know how long, maybe three weeks or something after and the winter's coming and she decides to, to go and at least to, to give a queenly, uh, pr- princely burial for, for this, uh, Royal sister of hers. And as she goes, like they come out of, out of the town where all these dreadful things had happened out of her house where the, she's under the rule of her father, who's a tyrant. And there's the death and the mourning, and she comes up into this gorgeous countryside. And we're really to think of the mountain as a natural temple in this book. And she, they come basically to the to the pavement in front of the temple, which is this beautiful natural environment. And Lewis loved nature; he loved walking and and uh, natural things. Narnia, of course, is so expansive uh, in in nature. And uh, there, um, she begins. Her heart begins to lighten, and her grief 
is set aside for a moment. And, and it's almost like a voice in our heart says, why should you not dance? Why should your heart not dance? Um, and, uh, but then she rules herself. She conquers it. She, she's able to keep that joy from invading the grief uh, that that has come in our heart, and I, and I've felt like this. I've I've uh, my my mother died uh, recently. My father died. Uh, I had a brother die. A sister in law, a, a cousin. Um, uh, my best uh, some of my best friends now are struggling with uh, cancer, and so I understand. There's a kind of guilt when you you laugh at a joke, or you take joy in a pastry, or in a drink, or uh, in the hug of a friend, or you actually have uh, interests. Uh, uh, books actually satisfy you. Feel a little guilty in the midst of grief in those moments, um, but uh, sh- uh, you, we don't give in to those. Like that's part of the healing. And eventually, if our grief is healthy, we will take up the memory of the one we have lost into the joy of future moments. But Oral can't do this. She has to keep psyche. She mummifies psyche in her mind before she gets to the point of bearing the bones. Now, this is an important point, right? This mummification, this book, um, and I, I have an article I haven't finished on this, but this book is written just after Lewis had had a powerful experience with one of his uh, past, I guess, uh, kind of like a student. Um, Sheldon Van Aken has written about it in a book called A Severe Mercy, which is also a good pairing with this book. Mm. Because uh, uh, Sheldon Van Aken's partner, Davy, has died uh, Lewis had been mentored to them both, helped them both find faith. Davy passes away, and Van Aken begins to kind of uh, uh, turn his heart towards uh, suicide, basically, to, to be together. And Lewis senses this in the midst of the uh, conversation by letters, which is hard to do, senses the danger, warns him of the danger that you taking your own life may not lead you to Davy but actually might divide you from Davy. He says it very sensitively, so not a complete guilt or problem thing, but just very subtle. And then says, basically, you are in danger of mummifying her. Of And at that point, uh, Van Aken had been going through their life, listening to every record that she ever listened to when they bought it, going day by day through the years of their life. Um, like uh, in The Great Divorce, the woman that, that kept the boy's room that died the exact same for a decade and yeah. denied, yeah, d- mummified the room, mummified the memories. And he actually uses that word mummification. Uh, and this is what Orwell is doing. It's, it's precisely that danger. And Lewis says in those letters to Van Aken that all, you know, love has to die uh, marriages have to die in order to, uh, sorry, uh, erotic love has to die in order to become a true marriage. In your case, it died before that transformation takes place. In a way, that's the easier transformation. Because marriage, after years of, of decay instead of actual death of one thing and then living into another, is, is a terrible experience. Um, and uh, erotic love, in a sense, gives itself over uh, to that more affection and friendship um, and ultimately gets taken up into godly love. And that's how a marriage um, works. Not that the erotic goes away, it just gets transformed into the new godly love. And and that's the thing that um, Orwell needed to have happen with Psyche, is for her to to allow a certain kind of, allow her to die and then to let her live in new ways. And she can't do that. She won't let her heart dance. 
She won't let joy in. She won't let light in. And But she has a second chance to do this. She meets Psyche on the mountain, alive and well, if she can only have eyes to see it. And Psyche says the same thing. You know, what, what, what do you mean make plans? Why, why do we have to make plans? I'm here in my house. I'm with my husband, my lover, you know. Uh, you know, why should we make plans? What is there to do? Why should your heart not dance, she says. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm just like, oh, wow, you know. Anyway, it's a gorgeous line, but it's, it's a powerful moment in the text uh, that shows and then I, I think connects to really everything that Lewis was working on through the through the 1950s at that moment. Yeah. Well, I actually think that's a fantastic point to stop. Uh, I had wanted to talk about the four loves and the screw tape letters, uh, but we were going great guns. So I thought, no, we're going to carry on talking about till we have faces. Uh, but I would love to have you back on to talk about those books. Yeah. Well, let's like, yeah, when you do your screw tape letters, um, I've done some research into the, the way that they fit in Lewis's World War II era writing. And so I'd love to come on and kind of talk about that. Uh, and because uh, it's kind of fun. This is where you get into like book nerdness. <laughs> not that not that screw tape letters is thin, but just the it, it doesn't have the complexity and expansiveness that Till We Have Faces does um, and is much more experimental. This is Lewis writing kind of a letter a week for a few weeks. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to kind of chat about that book. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me and talking with me today. Uh, where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, you can always find me at www.apilgrimandarnia.com. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter and things like that by just searching my name, Brenton Dickerson. And and uh, in my blog, we'll generally kind of talk about what's happening in my scholarship and things and and ways that you can take classes. Uh, we have an excellent uh, master's degree program, and I'm part of also bachelor degree classes that have Lewis or literature and theology that are connected. So I'd encourage you to kind of reach out and let me know. And, uh, if, you know, as I think you say with points with Jack, make sure you share this if you like it and, and that other people have a chance to, to see. And, and really, I think what we want with, you know, your podcast and my blog and, you know, our work as readers is to invite people into a bigger space of experiencing these texts, right? And so uh, share it if it works for you. Wonderful. And listeners, please join us next time when Matt and I are going to be doing our Till We Have Faces retrospective when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs>